All right, we're going to take a very brief look at homosexuality this morning. Um, This is part of the bigger picture of teaching here at GBC with our identity seminar last spring, our series on gender in the fall, for Thessalonians 4 now. So last Sunday we had a brief study about pornography and today just a brief look at homosexuality. And again, we've got to just focus in very narrowly here. So I just want to start with what the Bible says. This, um, most of this material is based off of Kevin DeYoung's book that you see listed in the resource section at the end. So in your Bible, Genesis 19, we'll see that what the Bible says about sec- homosexuality is pretty simple. It just places homosexuality right in with all other forms of sexual immorality um, as transgressions of God's plan and boundaries for sexuality. Remember, God's standard is sex between one man and one woman in a faithful marriage expressed in a way that demonstrates love for God and one another. So here's an important thing to understand before we begin. If the Bible never specifically mentioned homosexuality, we would still know that it's not holy sexuality, right? We wouldn't need a single specific mention of it from everything the Bible teaches about male and female and marriage and sex. But the Bible does mention it in a few places. So the first is Genesis 19. Um, but the, though in going to Genesis 19, remember that we've, we've passed over Genesis 1 and 2 where the first marriage is between one man and one woman after man was created in the image of God as male and female. The woman is like Adam but different from Adam. They became one flesh. It takes male and female to fulfill their Genesis 1 calling to fill the earth. And later, Jesus points back to Genesis and says marriage is the result of God's making male and female and putting them together in marriage. And the New Testament says marriage is an illustration of Christ and the church, which is uh, this bringing together of two different things into this oneness. It's not an interchangeable pair like you can just swap out Christ and church. Um, so starting with Genesis 1 and 2, the consistent biblical teaching is that marriage consists of one man and one woman. Now, Genesis 19, we have the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 5 is a horrific verse. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them, which of course is just the Hebrew euphemism for have sex with them. Little did they know the two men were angels of God. And what goes on to happen there is a a violent, horrific situation. And so the question is whether homosexuality was the problem here. Because Sodom and Gomorrah become symbolic of sinfulness and God's judgment many times in Scripture. Was homosexuality the problem here? Um, And if we just had this one passage all by itself, we 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 might not be sure since there's really horrible violence in this passage too. But two other passages answer the question for us. Ezekiel 16, verse 50, talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, refers to their abomination, which is Old Testament word for used often for homosexuality. And in the New Testament, Jude, verse 7, refers to the unnatural desire of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. So, Homosexuality wasn't the only sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, but it was definitely one of the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
The next we have is in the book of Leviticus. So if you turn ahead to Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus 18, verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And then chapter 20, verse 13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. This is in a section of Leviticus that describes how the Jews should live as God's holy people. It's particularly in sections that name various types of sexual sin. Now, some people would be quick to say, well, the New Testament says we're not under the law directly as New Covenant believers. Um, and they would also be quick to point out that in these same sections, there are laws like, like Leviticus 18, verse 19, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. And so they would say, well, are you going to apply laws like that too? So let's talk for just a second about how we understand the Old Covenant laws for New Covenant believers. The New Testament says that the law, while it wasn't written to us, was written for us, and that what we need to do is discern the principles in all of the law and apply them to ourselves. For example, Paul takes the law about not muzzling an oxen, and he says, the point's not about oxen, is it? He says, this was written for us, and he goes on to talk about how it's okay for those, whom, for those who preach the gospel to make their living from the gospel. So he gets the principle and applies it to the new covenant believer. So in every part of the Old Testament law, we ask, what is the principle? And sometimes the law itself isn't the principle. We have to dig a little bit. So like when the law says that you have to have a railing around your roof. Most of you don't have a railing around your roof. But the principle there is love for your neighbor because they had flat top roofs that were like an outdoor living room. And if you didn't have a railing, you were being negligent. People were going to walk off your roof and hurt themselves. And so show love and put a railing on your roof. So the principle is to be careful when possible to lovingly protect others from accidental harm. So sometimes we have to dig a little bit for the principle. Sometimes the principle's just sitting right there on the surface. And one of the ways we can know what the principle is is because the principle is going to connect with other parts of Scripture. There's nothing else in Scripture about railings on roofs as a, a new covenant expectation, but there's a lot about showing loving concern for your neighbor. So, what about these verses about homosexuality? What's the principle here? Well, the verses themselves make it clear. Like if you look at Leviticus 18, well, whichever verse you're looking at, says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. Which tells us that the principle here is Genesis 1 and 2. That God created sex to be between man and a woman. So what do these verses mean for today? What's the principle that applies today? Homosexuality is sin because it violates God's order for sexuality. The principle is really just right there on the surface in this case. All right, Romans chapter 1. If you'll turn there, Romans chapter 1. 
and verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So what's Paul talking about here? What's he teaching? Well, in the context, Paul is talking about how our sinful human heart tends to exchange things that we shouldn't exchange. So in verses 21 through 23, he talks about how we exchange the glory of God for idols and worshiping idols. And then in verses 24 and 25, he says that we exchange the truth for lies. And then in verses 26 and 27, he says that we exchange natural relations with the opposite sex for relations with the same sex. Our hearts are bent away from God's ways. Like sheep, we tend to go our own way, right? And homosexuality is a sinful exchange. This is God's way. I want to go this way. I want to trade God's created purposes for something else that is actually the opposite of it. All right, two more verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter six, verse nine. Do you not know that we, we read these verses this morning, sorry. Do you not know that we read these verses this morning? Uh, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexual homosexuality. And then verse 11 says, Such were some of you, you were washed, you were sanctified, as we saw this morning. Um, the end of verse 10 says they won't inherit the kingdom of God. So uh, over to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I'm just putting these verses together because they say the same thing. Basically, 1 Corinthians 6 says, Men who practice homosexuality won't inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. And in verse 10 he says, For the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality. That's who the law is for, to convict and bring to repentance and to Christ. All right, so in these two verses... Um, there are, there are two Greek words in 1 Corinthians 6, one Greek word in 1 Timothy. Um, so there are two key words here because um, one of them is in both passages. One of the words seems to have been created by Paul. It literally means those who take males to bed. And so it's a word used for sexual activity with the same sex. The other word could mean effeminate, but it's more likely referring to the passive partner in same-sex activity. So the bottom line is that these terms in these two passages are pretty simply and clearly speaking about homosexual sex acts. Okay, there you go. You've seen it. Those are the passages that specifically refer to homosexuality. Genesis, Leviticus, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy. 
And they all fit into the overall context of Genesis 1 and what Jesus says about male and female and marriage and everything else the Bible teaches. Genesis 2 and everything else the Bible teaches about male and female and sexuality and marriage. So the Bible doesn't talk about homosexuality a lot. And Jesus didn't specifically name the sin of homosexuality. It is very popular, even in the last two weeks, to talk about that on social media. Memes about, did you know Jesus didn't say anything about homosexuality? Um, And yes, that's right. Jesus didn't specifically name homosexuality. And so, um, because the Bible doesn't talk about it a lot, there are so many and constant attempts to try to discredit what the Bible says. If, if there's a chance that these passages actually don't mean what they seem, then maybe homosexuality and Christianity are compatible. And so there is a constant flow of books, documentaries. There's a major documentary about this that came out this year. Conferences, major conference at, at North Point in Atlanta this year about this. Social media, all of this supposedly proving that homosexuality is biblically acceptable. And too many churches are going along with that. So, Kevin DeYoung's book that, ha- that works through these passages, like we just did, half of the book, seven chapters, is just dealing with all these different arguments that homosexuality is fine. He says, there are no persuasive historical, cultural, pastoral, or hermeneutical reasons for setting aside the plain meaning of the Bible. So, the Bible doesn't talk about homosexuality a lot, but what it does say is clear. And as I said earlier, it wouldn't have to say anything for us to know. And actually, <laughs> the fact that it only talks about it a few places is, is significant for a couple, a couple reasons. First of all, people talk about the clobber passages. That's how they like to refer to these verses that we just read the clobber passages. Folks, if the Bible wanted to clobber people about homosexuality, it didn't do a very good job. It just talks about homosexuality together with all the rest of the way our heart bends away from God's purposes for sexuality. It doesn't treat it as this one giant greatest sin above all sins, worse than anything else anyone could ever do. It just says marriage is between one man and one woman and homosexuality is sin. And it says that in about five places six places. So it doesn't clobber about it. Um, and it really is just kind of what we'd expect. We, just, we don't expect one sexual sin to be highlighted above everything else as if it's the one. They're all, remember we just saw in 1 Thessalonians 4, the Lord is the avenger of all these things, all these types of sexual immorality. So the Bible doesn't say a lot. It does speak about it a few times, and what it says is clear. The passages really aren't, aren't difficult despite all the protest to the contrary. All right, um, so I'm going to move on from that now to a second theme. I just want to comment very briefly on why identity is so important. Remember our identity seminar? The link to that is down in the resources, Um, but I just want to add to that by noting a couple things. Um, Pastor John mentioned last Sunday, I mentioned the week before, the book by Christopher Wan that's called Holy Sexuality. It's down there in your resource list. He emphasizes that the terms heterosexual and homosexual are pretty unhelpful from a biblical perspective because those terms suggest that your desires define you. You are homosexual or you are heterosexual. But I'm not Mexican. 
despite how much we enjoyed Miguel's Jr. Friday night. And I don't think the Osbournes are Mexican either. I saw them there. Our desires don't define our identity. The world wants to define everything in these ways because they like to say that your sexual desires are the most important thing about you. They are the key to your happiness and your meaning. But the Bible doesn't categorize people based on our sexual desires. That's not how it categorizes. It doesn't, base pe- it doesn't categorize based on any of our desires. True identity is not something we find within us, certainly not by looking at what we want or feel like we want. So Christopher Wan writes, True identity is not what I do, for example, I am a writer, nor is it how I am, for example, I am happy. True identity is who I am. In other words, identity in Christ means union with Christ. It's God who gives us our, our identity. So when we talk about homosexuality, thinking biblically about identity is really essential, and we talked about that so much in Identity Seminar. All right, thirdly, um, five ministry priorities for those struggling with same-sex attraction. So I'm getting right to the kind of the nitty-gritty here. These five are, I'm, I'm taking these straight from an article by Michael Emlett. You can see it in the resources at the end. Um, but they give us a good, just practical set of things to talk through here. Um, so I'll try to get through this in time. So here are his five. Number one, overcome a don't ask, don't tell mindset. Um, and that's just what we were talking about in the sermon this morning, right? He writes, would those who, struggle, who wrestle with same-sex attraction be more likely to share their struggle if other believers model weakness and the expectation of struggling and suffering in the Christian life? So that's what we were saying. It's, we're not at all saying that you need to go talk about your sexual sins with everyone, but that we need to be willing to come to brothers and sisters and say, hey, would you pray for me? Would you help me? Here's what, here's what I'm wrestling with. Um, and, and sometimes in churches, homosexuality has been the thing that no one's ever allowed to talk about. You never mention, and it should not, should not be that way. Secondly, emphasize identity in Christ over sexual identity. That's what we were just saying, right? Um, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's who he is. We saw in 1 Corinthians 6, who are you? Washed, sanctified, justified. Who are you? Adopted as a son or daughter of God. Forgiven, given a mission, given eternal life. That's your God-given identity. So push back on the world's way of identifying you. They want to give you a name badge. You know, are you homosexual or gender or heterosexual or queer or whatever? all related in one way or another to sexuality. And we have to say, no, that's not what really defines us. Number three. All right, here we get down into the weeds, but it's important weeds. He says, don't confuse temptation with sin. And then in the process, he actually talks about two related themes, um, not just that one. And this is kind of tricky territory. There is some room for some disagreement on exactly how this works. But let me try to tell us why it's important. There are two dangers we have to avoid. First of all, there is the danger of treating same-sex desires as if they are just neutral. 
There's nothing wrong with them. You were just born that way. It's just who you are. And so that's a, that's a big problem if we say that. It's not biblical to say that. We have to be clear that to desire what does not please God is sinful. We'll talk about that more in a second. On the other hand, there is the danger of treating homosexual desires as if they're so intrinsically sinful that any person who struggles with them is just like permanently defiled. He says, those struggling with same-sex attraction might say, sometimes I feel that no matter what I do, I'm displeasing to God. I'm perpetually dirty just because of the temptation itself. And so we have to be clear that we can be tempted and yet not sin. So it's, these, these truths have to both be held onto. Temptation is not sinful. Desire for what doesn't please God is sinful. The connection between those two is a little tricky to figure out exactly, but it's, it's really important. And Christopher Wan does a great job of tackling this in his book. I'm going to show you how Emlet breaks this down. First of all, he says, number one, the Bible definitely teaches it is possible to be tempted without sinning. And that's his main point here. That's his main emphasis here. Christopher Wong kind of comes at it from another angle. How do we know that? Who's the number one example of the fact that you can be tempted not sin? <laughs> it's Jesus, right? So it's possible to struggle with homosexual attraction or desires, or however we want to word it, and to obey God through the struggle, to please God despite that struggle. Number two, temptations may arise from within the flesh, from the world, situations, circumstances, particular allurements, or from the devil. And that makes some difference in how we think about temptations versus our own desires. Number three, sin occurs not simply at the level of outward actions, but inward thoughts and intentions. So in Matthew 5, Jesus connects the commandment, don't commit adultery, with the commandment, don't covet your neighbor's wife. Adultery is an outward action. Coveting is an inward intention. But Jesus says that both are sinful. Both the outward action and the inward intention. So it's possible to be tempted without sinning, but it's also true that when my heart really wants what is sinful, that desire in itself is, is sinful. Just because a desire feels very natural to us, just because a desire feels like who I am, like I was born that way, that doesn't make it good. We are born sinners. And so there are things that feel very natural to us. There are things that we, were, we would say, I feel like I was born this way. But being born a sinner doesn't make sin right. Number four, no desire is neutral per se. As Pastor John taught us, every desire is headed in a direction. And that direction is either holy or not. Either a desire has a God-honoring end or it doesn't. So at least in terms of sexuality, there's not really such a thing as a neutral desire. Those desires either have a godly end or not. And yet at the same time, the encouragement is that we can be tempted and not sin. Temptation itself doesn't dishonor God. So now you're going to want me to explain the difference. <laughs> I don't know. But 
Christopher Wan does a good job of explaining that trying to work, trying to think through whether our desires are right or not is just normal Christian living. Like, that's what somebody with same-sex desires has to wrestle through. Am I desiring something that honors God? And if not, that desire itself is sinful. But that's what we're all wrestling through. What is it that I want? What is it that I'm trying to get in life? Is it God-honoring things? Am I pleasing the Lord with what I'm wanting and what I'm seeking and what I'm, what I'm living for? And so the, the next point he makes is, number five, it's appropriate to seek change at the level of our desires, affections, and motivations. Galatians 5, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So the world insists that our sexual desires will never change. I mean, just like with gender, in this area of homosexuality, they say, look, if you suggest to someone that they need a change in their desires, they're going to commit suicide. You know, they, they throw the suicide threat at you immediately. And so the, the assumption is no one's, they're, 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 those desires are the very essence of who we are. They're, they're never going to change. And it may be that the sum of the bent of our sinful heart won't change. We'll battle with it our whole life. We've got some people in the room here this morning who are in the later seasons of life. You have some bents in your heart that you still fight against that you've had your whole life. And those desires themselves have never like permanently and completely disappeared from your heart. You've got to keep fighting against that tendency to, to fear or worry or pride or arrogance or whatever it might be. Yet, the Bible shows us that we can and we should seek change at the level of our desires. So when the world says, this is who you are, you are homosexual, nothing will ever change that. Uh, from a Christian standpoint, we would say, well, you might struggle with it your whole life, but no, that's not who you are, and it would be right to seek change from the Lord at the level of your desires. To paraphrase Christopher Wan, he says, let's not be too quick to tell God what he can't do. And he tells one of the stories, one of his friends that he talks about, and Anecdotal evidence is not what proves truth in this area, but um, he, he talks about one of his friends who struggled mightily with same-sex desires and along those lines had a girl who was a close friend of his because that was safer with what he was struggling with in his desires. Over time, started dating that girl, married that girl, and his testimony was she was the only girl that he had any sexual interest in. And he had no explanation for how God did that, but it is what God did. I don't, I'm not telling that story to say that's going to happen to everybody or anything like that. I'm just saying we sh- when the world says it will never change 100% guaranteed, from a Christian standpoint, we have to say, hmm, don't be too quick to tell God what he can't do. Um, But if you do struggle with certain desires your whole life, you are not, therefore, some sort of second-rate believer who can never fully please God. Amen? (laughs) 
So he then lists a few practical guidelines for facing temptation. This is his list, not mine. Literally turn away, call out to God in prayer, get angry at Satan, consider what good work God is calling you to do right now, pray for the person that you're attracted to if you're often around them, ask, am I fighting this desire or fueling it? Okay, back to his main list. Number three was don't confuse temptation with sin. Number four is what we were just talking about. Have realistic biblical expectations for change. It is right to seek change at the desire level, and God might marvelously transform our desires. But we may not always see as much change at the desire level as we wish we would. Some of those desires might stubbornly stick around, and we can please God by saying no to them year after year after year, all the way till He takes us home to glory. Seek desire, seek change in our desires, but be realistic about that too. Letter uh, number five, create a context for both singles and married couples to thrive in your church. As a single man who does battle with same-sex desires, um, he is trying to help the church understand how important the church family is for singles, whatever the reason might be for that singleness. As people who love God, we have to make much of marriage especially in a society that tries to get rid of it. It's such a vital picture of Christ in the church. We've got to make much of marriage. But marriage is not ultimate. Marriage is temporary, pointing to something greater. Marriage can be a beautiful gospel picture in this life, but in the end, marriage has a fulfillment when we're all the bride of Christ. And so marriage in this life is very good, But it isn't necessary. As I said last Sunday, singleness is not a disease. And the reason we're talking about this now is because when people struggle with same-sex desires, we sometimes communicate to them that the only way they can please God is if God completely takes away all of that struggle and they get married in a heterosexual marriage. Anything less than that means they're a second-rate or last-rate Christian. And that is not healthy thinking at all. Because, oh, that gets in so many messy things, like this nonsense about trying to get men who, who, who struggle with same-sex desires to lust over women, as if that would be a good step forward. That is out there way too much. Remember, the goal is holy sexuality. The goal is not actually marriage, though that can be a rightful desire for many Christians if God wills. The goal is holy sexuality, whether single or married. And Christopher 1, I think, defines it so well. Do you have this on your notes there? Holy sexuality consists of two paths. Do you have that? Great. Holy sexuality consists of two paths. Chastity in singleness and faithfulness in marriage. Chastity is more than simply abstention from extramarital sex. It conveys purity and holiness. Faithfulness is more than merely maintaining chastity and avoiding illicit sex in marriage. It conveys covenantal commitment. And so, for those for whom God's will is singleness, they especially need the church to remember that, to remember that families go home to what is hopefully a wonderful place of relationships in their home, 
As a matter of fact, some families think our family is so great we don't, we don't need the church, which isn't true. But the point is that for many singles, church is supposed to be a primary place for wonderful relationships, for deep relationships, for deep friendships. Church is where they're supposed to have that in their ultimate family, which is the family of God, which is a more ultimate family than any of our earthly families. And church is where they do spiritual parenting, just as the single Apostle Paul did. Singles are not second-rate Christians. So, Emlet says, create a context for both singles and married couples to thrive in, in your church. Okay, uh, what time is it? 11.41 or 7? Is that a 1 or 7? 41. 41. Ah, happy day. Okay, uh, so just look at the resources quickly. The Identity Seminar URL is there. The next book in the list by, is The Bible and Homosexual Practice. That's like the, if you want the 540-page uh, deep dive into every one of these passages and biblical issues, that's, that's, the, that's the volume. Christopher Wan's book is next. Um, I've re- we've referred to it several times. I recommend it. One thing I haven't mentioned is that he has some helpful chapters on relationships with friends and family who, who maybe come out as as homosexual. Um, I mentioned again Rosaria Butterfield's book about her uh, conversion and, and then the more recent book, Five Lies of Oriental Christian Age. Um, both Christopher Wan and Rosaria Butterfield were saved out of lives of uh, homosexuality. The next book by Kevin DeYoung, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? So if you're not up to the 500 pages in that earlier book, uh, this is the short, brief summary that's really good. And as I mentioned earlier, half the book is just what the Bible says and half the book is some of the big objections people have today about what the Bible says. The next thing is the article that we used in that last section. And then finally, I included Peter Hubbard's book, Love and Delight, The Gospel, the Homosexual, and the Church. I included this book because it is a really helpful challenge to love and to care and to ministry, both serving Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction as well as bringing the gospel to non-Christian, to non-Christians. And I wanted to put it in here because sometimes the call to love, as you know, love is love, is one of the catchphrases of the whole uh, gender, homosexuality, LGBTQIA+, you know, um, ethos. Love is a big idea. And in churches, love can sometimes be the Trojan horse that leads to compromise. In the name of love, we bury the Bible and what the Bible says. So what I, and, and oftentimes, when you talk to Christians whose views about something like homosexuality or gender have changed, ask them why their views change, and it starts with stories of people who were bullied, people who were harassed, people who were harmed, for gender or sexuality-related issues. And so it's their heart for those people that ends up leading them to ditch what the Bible says is true. So the reason why I recommend Hubbard's book is because his book is about love, and it puts a really strong emphasis on care and, and love, but without at all compromising truth. And so that's really needed. We need that kind of, that kind of voice on, on these issues. So I included that too. There are other things, but that's a I think a great key set of resources. All right, 1144. Made it. Thanks for bearing with sound doctrine.
Remember what Paul tells Timothy? A time's going to come when they won't endure healthy doctrine. And this was one of those mornings when it was not easy, was it? Whew, let's go all take a good nap. But it is really important to not just come to church and do what would just feel the nicest, but to come seek God's truth because we love the God of truth. So let's pray. Father, thank you for a church family that loves truth and is willing to go through the hard work of enduring um, sound doctrine. I pray that you'd bless them and you'd encourage them and you would build them up. And I don't know all the different ways in which the temptations of homosexuality might touch our church family in individual hearts, in, in struggles, in, in family members. I don't know, but I pray that you would take these truths and let them not just be head knowledge, but equip us to please you in holy sexuality and to minister well to others. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.